Hey, Spark. I want to start by thanking everyone who contributed to this week's service. You know, our church is really only two things, the people and the values that the people hold. And if you might happen to be new, visiting, or just checking things out, trying to figure out what kind of church Spark is, you got a really good glimpse of it just now over the past few moments. And we still have more Sparkers sharing their candle lighting and the choir song after the message today. And then, of course, if you're curious about our values, they are on the website. But what I want you to know, and what I want to remind us all, is that they are actually, um, in the words of the ancient prophet named Jeremiah, written on the hearts of this community. So, Sparkers, thank you all so much for inspiring us to live the way of Jesus, for your contribution to this week's service. I know that in the midst of a pandemic, schedules are difficult and complicated, and so for you to take time out to add beauty and life to our service means the world to us, so thank you. You know, I also want to give voice to the darkness that is still around us, the anxiety of rising COVID cases, the statistics that just break our hearts, the loneliness that is overwhelming many of us, the breaking points with Zoom schooling and Zoom meetings, economic insecurity, um, the regular challenges that come with work, and the new challenges that come with bubbling up with new relationships and simply trying to get grocery shopping done. It is uh, all of that context, within all of that, that I'd like to share with you a brief teaching entitled, The Solution to Sin. Now, I fully recognize that there is an affective purpose to Christmas. There's this warm feeling, a sense of coziness, and a happiness that comes with friends, family, decorations, shopping, presents, gift-giving, eggnog, lattes, peppermint, mochas, Christmas movies, and on and on and on. And we in the church actually have a saying to attempt to counter the commercialization of the holiday, that Jesus is the reason for the season. But... Even that statement doesn't go far enough to really begin to tap into the power of these stories, the depth of insight and force of the challenge of what these stories are meant to convey. I would like us to consider this. The birth of Jesus was not originally a Christmas story. It was originally a theologically rich, socially transformative, politically threatening story. I mean, that's what kind of story we are reading every year when we come to this time. It's a story that brought together the fullness of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, all the commandments, the prophetic tradition, the poetic utterances into a new time and place under Greek culture and Roman rule. It's a story that endangered the political powers that were governing the land, a story that gave hope of economic and social liberation to the oppressed. This was not a Christmas story, a cuddle up by the fire and lighted pine tree while sipping a warm cup of cocoa kind of story. This was a revolutionary story that spoke to the beginnings of the fulfillment of salvation from thousands of years of oppression and enslavement and threat. And our ancestors passed down these stories so that they would do something in this world. These stories are active. And so in the midst of the emotionality of the season, if we simply passively receive warm feelings, some sort of spiritual massage during this time that makes us feel good, 
we will have missed the fundamental essence of why these stories and our history is so profound. So today I'd like to interrogate one verse of this story and tease out the implications for our understanding, not just of Christmas, but of our Christian faith and how this story fits into the grand framework for how we are to see ourselves as followers of Jesus. That verse is Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, a couple years ago, uh, one of my sermons was entitled something like The Reason for the Season, in which I used this verse to remind us that sin was the reason for the coming of Jesus. And so, every time you experience someone cutting you off in traffic or yelling at you from behind a checkout counter or being rude or inconsiderate, you can say, oh, you're the reason for the season. Today, I'd like to shift from the sin focus to the solution and what the solution and focusing on the solution might tell us about the problem that the coming of Jesus was supposed to address. We are now at the beginning stages of the deployment of the COVID-19 vaccine. This is no doubt a moment that will go down in history for its level of effectiveness and speed of development. This medical advancement is truly mind-boggling, and it could very well have positive implications for the advancement of medicine and public health from here on out. The vaccine is the solution because the virus is the problem. In other words, the solution is the solution because it is directly related to the problem. You remember when there was some of those moments uh, not too long ago when the solution was not quite clear. Most of us will remember not too far back when face masks were billed as the solution, or rather not billed as the solution, because at that time we didn't quite fully understand the problem of the aerosolization of the virus. Now, the solution, as we have come to understand it, is actually quite clear. If you meet with people, meet outside if you can, and wear your mask, because that greatly reduces the risk of spread, because we now understand the problem is that our risk of infection increases due to the spread through aerosolized virus particles and the viral load that leads to infection. The clarity of the problem is connected with the efficacy of the solution. Likewise, there is this inverse logic that the solution you choose to combat a problem tells you a great deal about what the problem is that you're attempting to address. All of you, in your work and in your family, are constantly navigating problems and solutions and trying to ensure that you've got the right solution to match with the correctly identified problem. So we all do this. How does this work with faith? The entirety of the Christmas story is the coming of a baby, what some call a God-man, to save people from their sins. But what most of us grew up under is an already established definition of the problem of what sin is. And so our interpretation of this story has been filtered through the various concepts of sin that we've been taught or that exist in our culture. For, for example, many of us grew up with the definition of sin as some sort of spiritual depravity in our souls. The general idea here is that ever since 
gosh darn it, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, we have inherited a stain upon our souls. Hashtag thank you. Our very nature is corrupt and our souls are condemned to hell and we need to be saved from our own depravity. Many years ago, a popular Christian band named Cademan's Call even had a song ironically called Thankful, which had a line in it that sang, we're all stillborn and dead in our transgressions. We're shackled up to the sin we hold so dear. Shackled up to the sin we hold so dear. So the song even declares thankfulness that I'm incapable of doing any good on my own. This concept of sin is called original sin and has its roots in a long tradition of Christian history. And you can search Wikipedia for all the various intricacies of that idea. But I would like to ask the question, if that idea of sin was the problem, if a stain upon our hearts was the real problem, wouldn't the solution be some sort of spiritual sanitation, a a spiritual disinfectant, if you will, a spiritual Clorox wipe to cleanse and forgive the heart and the soul, much like the wipes that we're using on all of our surfaces these days. And wouldn't Mary's song, which pastors Danielle and Omer have addressed, speak to the cleansing of her soul rather than to the scattering of the proud, the bringing down of the rulers of their thrones, the lifting up the, of the humble and the filling of the hungry? And wouldn't the Magi's declaration, instead of declaring Jesus a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, wouldn't they instead say, a savior who has cleansed my heart and soul? The narrators of these stories are pointing to a very different kind of problem. Now, for those of you who are already thinking of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote, I want to recognize that Paul's writing in the letter to Romans does speak to the idea that sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and so righteousness will come into the world through one man, Jesus. I would simply like to propose, however, that what Paul is doing in those passages is a distinctly different argument that goes beyond the gospel narratives in the telling of the birth story. In fact, Paul doesn't even mention the birth of Jesus in these sin passages as the solution to that problem. Most frequently, he mentions the death and resurrection of Jesus as the solution to those problems. So for now, our focus is on the birth of Jesus as a solution to the problem of sin, as written in the gospel accounts of Matthew, gospel account of Matthew. And when you look at the birth of Jesus as a solution, it does not appear as if a sinful stain upon our souls is the real problem that the birth of Jesus was attempting to remedy. So, let's consider the solution, and maybe that might tell us something about the problem. What's the solution? A brand new life in the birth of a baby. The anointing of spiritual power on that baby to rule. The coming of a new kingdom a new kind of social and political order through the reign of this baby. And this solution is fleshly, physical, tangible, incarnate. In accordance with that list of solutions, I am proposing to you, my friends, that the real problem, the sin that we are being saved from, that is central to our Christmas story, is a death 
that comes from evil and corrupt social and political rule from the hands of evil and corrupt rulers and leaders. The solution is new life. The problem is death. The solution is a new king. The problem is bad leadership embodied by corrupt rulers. The solution is a new way in which the social and political systems will operate. The problem is the current way in which the social and political systems devastate and bring ruin. The solution is most definitely salvation and rescue. The problem is most definitely sin. But those are the theological terms we use. Once we inspect the definitions more closely, we come to a clearer understanding of what salvation and sin is really all about. And here's the kicker. The gospel writers even have names for this sin. Herod, Augustus, Rome, pride, hunger. And this, my friends, makes so much more sense in light of the long Jewish history that precedes Jesus. The ancients believed that salvation was always going to come through a person. This is the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecies. And that person, that human, was going to establish a new government upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. By the way, all titles, perhaps even terms of endearment, that are attributed to enthroned rulers. To neither Mary, Joseph, nor the Magi was an original sin part of what they understood was happening with the birth of Jesus. Neither Herod nor Augustus understood that as well. In fact, they understood the threat to their throne, which is why Herod slaughters the babies in Bethlehem two years old or younger upon hearing the news of the birth of Jesus. If you're an installed official, ruling as a governor for Rome, over a province, you don't slaughter the babies of your peasant subjects if the problem is a stain upon your soul. Herod understood that the birth of Jesus was a pronouncement that you, Herod, are the problem. My friends, I am proposing for your consideration that the birth of a baby born as a ruler to bring a different kind of social and political order is the solution in line with the long prophetic Hebrew tradition in accordance with the covenantal love and faithfulness of God. And through this lens, we can surmise that the problem, the sin that we are remedying is death, corruption, evil leadership, and the social and political order that does not care for the people it governs. And both of these, the solutions and the problems, are physical, tangible, fleshly, and incarnate. And because they are fleshly and incarnate, the message, the hope is that we, the inheritors of this story, would do something about the death and corruption in our day. Wherever we see corrupt leadership, we would do something Wherever we would see social or political orders that do not care for the people, we would do something. Wherever we would see death through exclusive isms or heretical theologies, we would do something. This story compels us to enflesh, to incarnate the same solution of life, love, compassion, mercy, and justice here on earth. Because we know the problem is death, corruption, apathy and oppression.
Our series has been entitled Hope in the Dark. Pastor Danielle has shared that hope is how you sustain your faith in the absence of any evidence. She spoke about hope being the substance of waiting. I would like to add to this proposal that in addition to these insights, according to our story, hope is also an action. Hope is what you do in the dark. Hope is the behaviors that drive forward a new reality in spite of the darkness. Hope is the activity of the believers in Jesus. Hope is how faith moves. In the midst of holiday seasons, as we celebrate gifts, warm drinks, delightful decorations, and in the midst of a pandemic, we must also recognize that loneliness, despair, economic insecurity, these too are also types of death. In addition to the physical death that has come upon the victims of the virus, therein lies the problems and so we recognize the solution again to be physical, tangible, material, and incarnate. The solution is new life found in God's love, radical welcome, reconciliation, rescue, and resurrection expressed in and through community, connection, compassion, generosity, and love. My friends, as we navigate our way through this Christmas season, May we be reminded of the power of these stories to move us to action, to extend compassion and love, to deploy new life, to speak boldly against corruption, greed, pride, and the isms that so plague our minds and our culture, to keep corrupt leaders accountable and ensure that social and political systems submit to the ethics of God's kingdom in accordance with the life, ministry, and teachings of Jesus to put food on the table, dignity in our hearts, and liberation in our structures of existence. As we come to a time of communion, it is my prayer that you have a wonderful Christmas, but it is also my prayer that you would be captivated once again by the revolutionary story that has become the Christmas story. For those of you in darkness, that you would feel the warmth of God's love and companionship. For those of you uncertain about the future, that you would know the hope of God's salvation. For those of you in despair and sadness, that you would reach for the joy of the Lord to lift your spirits. And to all of us who claim to follow Jesus, that we would live out the salvation of Christ's birth as represented in the elements that we take each week in communion. For as we partake in these elements, we are proclaiming once again the radical life that Jesus lived, the upending of the corrupt world order, and the establishment of a kind of government ruled by a wonderful counselor and a prince of peace. The fulfillment of his calling to be the solution to sin in this world. After the communion song, I'm excited and so blessed to have sparkers sharing their candlelight reflections, and we will allow their words to be the fulfillment of the spirit of this season. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table. I light this candle for God's love, which brings light and hope to the darkest places in our lives and in the world. I light this candle for Spark Church because I want it to live for a long time. I light this candle for everyone who has experienced loss this year, and I think God, that um, Jesus means Emmanuel, God is with us. And I light this candle in memory of my mother and my cousins and all those who are working as doctors and nurses and medical workers during this time and being the hands and feet for God. I'm lighting this candle for my cousins because I love them and I like playing with them. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> I'm lighting this candle in hope that Jesus will bring peace and equality to this world. I light this candle for public health officials like Dr. Sarah Cody, who have worked so hard to make very difficult decisions this year to protect our health. People like her across the country have stayed up late at night, poured over the data, and done whatever they could to keep us healthy. Thank you to all of those who have given up so much of their lives to try and keep us safe. I like this candle for Jesus because he makes all things good. I like this candle for the kids who don't have their mommies and daddies. And I like this candle for our friends and family who are going through really tough times, whose parents and loved ones are going through health problems and they can't fully be with them because of COVID and the distance. Hi Spark. I light this candle for everyone who has felt sad and depressed and anxious, who have been grieving a loss of someone a loss of a dream, a loss of a job. I light this candle for hope, for hope that we can all rise again, stronger and better and more together than we ever have been.